On this episode of the Bitcoin Beat, we start with self-custody basics. Since these bank runs began, we've gotten some questions on removing Bitcoin off of exchanges. We thought it was important to educate on this topic. You can also find more detail on this topic on our website at suresats.com post slash self-custody, which I will also post in the show notes. Though if you'd like to skip ahead, we switch topics to the latest info on the banking crisis starting around the 13-minute mark. We start by discussing the Fed and Treasury's response to the crisis, and then we talk about the chattering surrounding the seizure of Signature Bank, and if it could be politically motivated due to a dislike of crypto. I do want to note, though, that those making these claims may also have their own agenda. Finally, we wrap by discussing what a Bitcoin global reserve world might look like. We hope you enjoyed the episode. You can reach out to us on our website at suresats.com or on our Twitter at suresats. So we were just chatting real quick with this whole bank run bullshit that's been going on this past week and how with the closure of Signature Bank, there really weren't any banking partners left for the crypto sphere. But unquote crypto sphere. So like right. your your normal exchanges that everyone knows about, like Coinbase, for example, that all our normie friends were keeping all their Bitcoin on. Yeah. So we were just like, we kind of sent out, I think on Sunday, like sent out an alert, like, all right, Signature Bank is closed. To our buddies. Yeah. You know, maybe out of an abundance of caution, I, I didn't think at the time that Coinbase was going to go anywhere, but more of an abundance of caution and also to utilize it as like a teaching moment as well. Like, hey, maybe it's time to get your corn off of Coinbase or off of wherever you held it. So it's just like, if you need anything, text me and we can walk through it. Yeah, so I think in my other, some of my group chats and stuff with friends from, you know, that I grew up with, they actually were asking questions about the bank failures. And then I was like, Coinbase did lose all of their banking. I don't know what it, exactly yeah, that what means that for mean? them. I just know um, you might have trouble with your cash on Coinbase. It might get stuck there for a little bit. And also, if, if you have Bitcoin on exchanges, I could see situations where everyone starts pulling out or... They've in the past halted withdrawals and, and stuff like that. So I was like, hey, just a heads up, you know, it might be a good time to take your Bitcoin off off the exchange. It's something that like I've brought up before and yeah. no one ever made a move on it. Yeah. But this is kind of the first time I'm seeing just like a lot of not crypto native people actually make the move towards self-custody. I think it's just a lot of fear in, yeah, in, oh yeah. in markets and For then sure. around banking in general. So that's just something I, I noticed this, this past week. So yeah. you're seeing bank runs and bitcoin moon and then at the same time you're seeing people run to self-custody their bitcoin just yeah. like everyday people yeah. and with that i mean I, I think came a lot of like really basic questions and also you know once we kind of pushed them along they were just like oh that was easy I was like yeah. yeah it's pretty easy but i think we we want to maybe just kind of talk about like some of those basic questions uh, yeah go through some of the stuff that they asked you yeah so i mean they they just asked like you know you have any suggestions for a Bitcoin wallet? I suggested either Moon or Casa. I kind of like Casa just because it's, I like the UX. I like Moon's UX. Yeah. But for, these are, I guess, hot wallets. Yes. So I guess if we want to go down the basics of that, there's hot wallets and cold wallets. Cold wallets mean that your keys, your private keys for your Bitcoin never touch the internet. A hot wallet is one that is kind of more readily available to the internet. Right. Your hot wallet, something that's going to be on your phone or on your laptop, something that's going to be like, like you said, readily accessed by the internet. It puts it at a larger risk of being hacked, being phished. So if you're clicking, you know, any emails or texts that you get, it could give someone access to your computer or your phone. They could then steal your private keys because once you move your Bitcoin from something like Coinbase over to a hot wallet, those private keys are going to be stored either on your computer or your phone using the encryption of your phone or your computer. I'll say this, this is already getting kind of weedy just because <laughs> I, I don't think it's like, it, it's not easy to hack these things. So no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. So like just the way you worded that, it's, it's more like if you have something connected to the internet, 
you can incorrectly put it somewhere else because you're already so let's say i open up a tab and it looks like my casa wallet tab but it's that's more of the risk there it's like a phishing attack versus like someone going in and breaking the encryption yeah for your yeah. keys it's Which, more of like human error and you're more likely to to succumb to that in, in those situations right in which i mean like those same things can happen with coinbase as well i mean your yeah. coinbase account can be hacked but that's also difficult so it is also anytime you're moving your keys from one place to another there's always a possibility for human error you're gonna get that long string of numbers and letters you want to double check that with any wallet that you're sending anything to just to make sure that you're sending it to the right place and it's not like some random place that doesn't exist and then it disappears forever so that's where the user error comes in but so we're just kind of going through, you know, those are the two options that I just kind of suggested. And once I kind of told him, one of my friends, he was just like, wow, that was easy. But then he started asking me a couple questions, you know, kind of like, you know, how much should I hold on something like this? And I, I recommended, you know, like we said, for a hot wallet, because there is more potential and connection to the internet, you really shouldn't be holding a lot of money it's more like a checking account as opposed to a savings account. so for like you're walking around money anything that you wouldn't really be worried about think of it as a wallet on you it's yeah, it's on you exactly. at all times exactly. so like, let's say someone take your phone or forced you to open up your phone this is money that you obviously wouldn't be happy losing but won't ruin your life right exactly and then so from there it was kind of like well what's the alternative so i said well you have you know, hardware wallet or multi-sig, you know, multi-sig also involves a hardware wallet. So he asked me, can you easily move from the hot wallet to the hardware wallet? And so, you know, I just replied, well, they're both just wallet addresses. One is just kind of secured in a different manner. So there's really no difference. It's not nothing difficult there. That was an easy question. What about if your hardware wallet was damaged? Are you shit out of luck is the question that I received. <laughs> you want to take that one? So anytime you create a a wallet or anytime you have a, a you hold custody of your Bitcoin, it basically consists of a public key and a private key. So the private key is usually denoted as a, a string of words, usually 12 to 24 words. So you could either pick 12 or 24. And this is what we call a seed phrase. And so if you write down that seed phrase, that is basically your access to be able to spend Bitcoin. So if you have those 12 words, no matter what hardware or software wallet you use, you could always restore from those 12 words. And th that's your private key. So again, to spend Bitcoin, you need your private key. And that basically unlocks your ability to spend any of the Bitcoin that you have in that wallet. So yeah, if you have a hardware wallet and it gets damaged, as long as you have those 12 words, you can buy a new hardware wallet and restore to that hardware wallet or you could restore those 12 words on a software wallet yeah those, that's basically the rundown on on private keys and in a hardware wallet a basic rundown yeah and i think and a, so and just to get into like what that even means like what if we're going super basic here what is a private key and it's just a really big number mm -hmm. and so how do these 12 words become a big number Bitcoin uses these hexadecimals to represent astronomically large numbers. So no one can just like pick your number. And if you think about these 12 words, the amount of combinations you could have in 12 to 24 words is so, it's, it's so large. It's more than all the grains of sand in, in the world or all the stars. It's, and I don't know if you could pull up this number. I want to see to what yeah. like exponential number it is. It's something insane. So it's a two, 256 bit. 256. Numbers, so two, two to the, the 256. 256. Yeah. So that doesn't sound crazy whenever you put a two in front. I want to find something comparable. Two to the 256. All right. So, so in comparison, there is 10 to the 18th power of grains of sand in the world. So, 10 to the 18th? Yeah. So two to the 256. It's so large we can't wrap our minds around it. It's 1.15 plus 77 more decimal spaces. Yeah. So, yeah, there's no chance of someone guessing your private keys. And that's all that is. It's just a number. That's what provides. Yeah. Same with the public. Too. Yeah. The public key is a number that you share publicly. So someone could send it send to your public address. And then the private key is what allows you to spend the things in those public addresses. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. 
So from there, Max Frisch. Oh, so he he asked me after I kind of explained the hardware wallet. Wouldn't that make my phone a hardware wallet in a sense? And while I mean, I guess you can see like. While it is a piece of hardware that is storing something, again, the difference would be the access to the internet, touching the internet. And How the private key was generated is also part of that. True. So hardware wallets have a specific chip in it that generates these private keys. For some hardware wallets, you could even add your own entropy along with that private, that chip that gen- generates these random numbers. Versus a software wallet, it is software generated versus mm-hmm. hardware generated. And then we are talking about the two examples that we used, Moon and Casa, are non-custodial. So Moon and Casa are holding your keys. Like we said, it's on your phone or your computer or whatever. So this prompted another question. Well, what happens if Casa or Moon, the company, go away? They disappear. So if you actually go onto Casa's website, they have like a step-by-step tutorial if for some reason they were to dissolve the company about how to recover your keys yeah so because their their software is essentially an interface to access the information that they have stored for you on your own device there's a way to then pull it back and move it somewhere else yeah and again that's the beauty about your private key just being a a large number is, you know, you don't need a, a, a company to to be there always for you to have a, a number. Right. You could store these numbers or you could store these words in your head and that could be used as your recovery. But I got a similar question and, and we don't need to go into each software independently, but Moon, for example, has a few different ways to log into your account and then also to do backups. So it's not just the 12 words. There's a, like other ways to do backups. And I think Casa is probably similar. But yeah, I got the same question. So what happens if I forget my password? And I was like, if you forget your password, you need you cannot lose those 12 words. That is the most important <laughs> thing. Or 24 words, I forgot yeah. exactly. What. But yeah, like you can lose your password. You could like get locked out of this thing. You could drop your phone in the toilet. But as long as you have those 24 words, you are good. Unless you then choose to do something like multi-sig. Or and yeah, then, then it gets more complicated. You don't need that. That's kind of like the next level. I know you're not a huge fan of it. Same Um, thing with Lightning. Yeah. So that's kind of the final. We won't really get into that right now because this is, I think, more of a a basic just like intro. If you got your Bitcoin on Coinbase, Kraken, whoever the hell, you know, it's always a good opportunity. Now is better than ever to just get it off and you don't have to feel that kind of panic of is the company that's holding it going to just yes and then what happens so and i'm sure a lot of people that were holding their bitcoin on ftx would have you know liked that message earlier yes so i think at some point we're going to get into like a bitcoin basics as well on like what it is why we need it etc that was just kind of a starter point for if you're looking and you're frantic what do we do Basic self-custody 101. Exactly. Yeah. And then we have an article on our website just for self-custody. And it and goes through this in a lot more detail. Yeah, you can go to suresats.com. It would be it would be under our how-to section, and then you'll find it in there amongst the articles. All right. Now, for everyone that doesn't care about that or already knows how to do all that, I think we're going to shift gears here to kind of the outcome of all the nonsense that happened last week and over the weekend we're just a couple days removed from our last recording we picked up pretty quick we were saturday which was the 11th 10th the 11th something like that and this was you know as the banks were failing silvergate bank failed on friday silvergate bank failed the previous wednesday we didn't really know what was going to yeah, happen after that? We didn't we... know the, the outcome on how this was going to be handled. So everyone was concerned Monday there's going to be a run on the banks. Everyone's going to divest from regional banks and basically concentrate all their wealth into the big three because those are the globally systemic important banks. So JP Morgan, Bank of America, Citibank, kind of the worry that 
everyone is just going to go there because everyone knows those banks are going to be fine. Yeah. They've already been bailed out in the past. So why wouldn't they be bailed out again? So because of this, the Fed had to put together an action plan how to really save this from accelerating and becoming worse. And over the weekend too, as we mentioned in the intro there, Signature Bank was also seized by the Department of Financial Services in New York City. So that was the next domino to fall. The other crypto bank, and they really aren't really even a crypto bank. They just have some partners that bank for them or yeah. bank with them that are involved in crypto. They're really more a property bank because they're based in New York City. So a lot of large property managers in Manhattan use them. But anyways, that's not truly important for time being. So once they fell, things really started to get shaky. All right, the Fed needs to do something. So they announced on Sunday night that they were going to be starting a new program called the Bank Term Funding Program. So now what this does is essentially it allows banks with high-level securities. So these are anything that you would U.S. Treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, things like that, the Fed would issue a loan against those assets to oh. the bank that might be having liquidity issues, but they would issue it at a one-to-one dollar -one value. So how did all this you know, situation start? It started with banks being underwater on their high-level securities, bonds, mortgage-backed securities that they bought when yields were very, very when low. When interest rates were low, yeah. yes. So when the interest rates were very, very low, they bought these. They put billions and billions of dollars into these. Once these interest rates rose, if they were to sell them on the market, they would be taking a loss because essentially no one wants a long-term security that yields a very low interest rate when they can just buy on the open marketplace the yeah. same security with a much higher interest rate. Yeah, so that reprices the old ones. Exactly. Much lower at that period of time. But if they held them all the way to the maturity, they'd still get that full value of what, you know, they when they initially bought it. Right. Exactly. So the plan here. And I kind of talked about this as a possibility on our last podcast. Yeah. Where I said, I think the Fed has the ability to do an asset swap. Right. Yeah. And this is basically what they ended up doing. Right. So, yeah, they are offering these loans up to one year for the banks. I think both of us see this maybe lasting a little bit longer, but it effectively means these banks that were holding these mark-to-market losses no longer have these losses on their balance sheet. Exactly. Yeah. It allows them to meet any redemption. So this whole issue stems from... Sorry, I just, I'm just laughing at that, just thinking about it, because I think I saw some tweets and be like, oh, how come the Fed can't bail out my mark-to-market losses on Bitcoin? Like the true value <laughs> of Bitcoin is five million a coin so why aren't they <laughs> they should just give me five million now that's fine. and we're good yeah i mean i was thinking about it too is like oh well what if i bought my house at the peak of 2020 when you know it was like i paid fifty thousand dollars over asking i didn't get a an inspection you know i did some favors for the homeowners i wrote them a nice letter and then you know, fast forward three years and my house is underwater and I'm out of money and I got to take out a home equity loan and I go to the Fed and I say, hey, can you just give me the value that it was three years ago? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what this is and why it's in But like what you're doing is the Fed is taking on, they're, they're handing out a loan based on an asset that isn't worth what they're alone. I mean, it will be in six, seven years, whenever the asset matures. But in the meantime, they're still underwater on that loan. So if like the bank, I think this is where it comes in with the, the one year time frame. What happens in a year when the bank is still probably not liquid because of a lot of reasons I think that are going to play out over the next year that they're going to have to be kind of competing for deposits because people can just put their money into U.S. Treasuries. Yeah. Cut out Something the middleman. Something we also man. talked about last episode. Yeah, cut out the middleman. And, I mean, you're not going to hold your money in a checking account and get 0.01% where you can just hold it in a three-month three, three treasury and get yeah. 5%. I mean, it also assumes that interest rates come back down. Exactly. Yeah. 
which we don't know at what you know how fast they're going to bring interest rates down, how fast they're going to need to bring interest rates down. Because at the same time, we're still fighting inflation. Yeah, and that could be very a, a rapid drop in rates. I feel like could kind of reaccelerate everything again. Oh, absolutely, home buying again. Lots of refinancing, maybe if anyone recently bought a home because they were like, you know what, I'm going to buy a house with mortgage rates at 7%. And then when the Fed inevitably reduces rates, I'm going to refinance. Yeah. So there's I a lot think of this was a cheeky way to do the bailout. And I, I think it was smart. I mean, like in the short term, it makes sense. It's smart because most people don't realize exactly what's happening. And in, in effect, this is money printing. So. Before this, we were still in rate hike and QT together. We were actively doing QT, but this is effective QE. And I think I said that in one of our group chats. Like once you think about what it actually does, well, at its core, and I, I didn't even make this connection when we recorded on Saturday. I just thought they do an asset swap and it's not really a bailout. But effectively what this is doing is buy creating these losses on their balance sheet or shifting it from the bank's balance sheet to the Fed balance sheet, it's flushing the system with cash. Mm -hmm. But also, if the Fed needs to roll this over later, right, because now they have all these assets on their side of the balance sheet, it's going to get rolled over at a higher interest rate. And so in order to not go broke for the Fed, they're going to need to print the difference. Does that make sense? I think so. So like in that, once that, year term comes comes due if they're at a higher interest rate than what it is yeah. you roll it over i mean yeah. i guess they could let it fall off but then you're in the same qt environment that we're in right now which like it's pretty clear that the banking system needs liquidity yeah and i mean wouldn't you say it's also almost a form of money printing too because you're lending cash at i mean in in essence cash at a higher rate or a higher number than what the assets are worth yeah. so you know, if it's worth $700 on the open market and you're giving them a thousand, it's $300 created. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that in itself is, that's quantitative easing in effect. Yeah. Essentially. And then, I mean, you look at. And the, that suppresses yields at the same time. So that's part of the quantitative easing thing. So by doing that, so by doing this asset swap, it encourages banks to buy the riskiest assets that they can hold on their balance sheet because the Fed is just going to give you, make you whole if you lose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's literally no loss. So if you're not going to be able to take, if you're not going to be able to lose and there's no penalty for time, right? Because typically the longer duration out, the more risk you're taking for that time that you're holding. That's why 30-year mortgages are at a higher yield than two-month T-bills because you have that time component. So much can happen in 30 years, mm. right? You don't know where inflation is going to be during that time or where interest rates are going to be. So you take on you take on that 30-year risk. Versus now, there is no penalty for going that far out on the risk curve. And so by doing that, you're suppressing yields. And it, when you have no risk in the system and you, the yields are down, the prices of everything else that's risky goes up. Does that make sense? Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Sorry, I was just like <laughs> blind stare looking at you trying to... <laughs> To recapture everything. Yeah, because like you have to think about it like this. If interest rates are down, the price of everything else typically goes up. Right. So this causes interest rates to come down. Right. Yeah. And I mean. On the on the risky side. Yeah. And I mean, this also, it, it almost kind of plays into their hand because kind of taking it, you know, a step further with what you're saying. Banks, first of all, this type of bail is almost, or not almost, it is incentivizing the exact behavior that got into this situation yeah. because, I mean, they were just, you know, YOLOing on treasuries and mortgage-backed securities with literally no hedge against it. And yeah. that's what caused the situation. Then they say, well, the things that you YOLOed on are high value or high value assets. So if you do it on those specific ones, we'll bail you out if something like this ever happens again. So what that does is it actually just incentivize more buying of, of USTs and mortgage-backed securities, which is honestly what the U.S. government needs. So you saw, like, I think the largest drop in the two-year treasury today, something like that. And I think 
that's kind of that that plays in their hand because they need to sell treasuries yeah so now they're incentivizing it and saying hey we'll take we'll take your loss on our balance sheet if you just keep continuing to buy these because we need you to it's effectively like nationalizing these banks yes which is something uh, we talked about last week or a few days ago as well and i'm not you know we're already seeing power centralized in just a few of these banks already. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that means. Yeah. I mean, over the last 50 years or so, I know it's, it's definitely centralized, but I think the, the top three control like 50% of the banking system essentially. Yeah. I mean, we talked about like how we can see this being like the CB, like leading toward the CBDC. And now, and, and that also kind of creates that too, because there's only really two or three institutions that you can trust for sure. So those would be the ones that might inevitably become the money issuer backed by the Fed. So that's, that's something that's concerning. I, I, another thing that's concerning, just kind of slightly shifting gears with Signature Bank, there's this whole kind of expose with Barney Frank, the former congressman. Was he from New York? I think. Not sure. Something like that. He's the one that did, that wrote the Dodd-Frank legislation, the banking legislation. I believe it was at like during the 08 crisis. He's actually sits on the board of Signature Bank in New York. And he had an expose today, New York Magazine. And he had one, I think, earlier in the week too, with maybe the New York Times. And he's kind of doubled down on this, these comments that the, the shutdown of, and the seizure of Signature Bank was a direct result of Signature Bank's involvement with companies that, that are involved with crypto. And even the DFS, the Department of Financial Services in New York, didn't even say that Signature Bank was insolvent. So they seized a yeah. bank that wasn't even insolvent. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that in itself kind of brings up legal issues. And who even knows if that's something that's legal? But it seems like they might have taken an opportunity here to kind of take out the final leg of kind of the banking backbone for the crypto ecosystem. And by crypto ecosystem, I think we've said before, just like your exchanges, maybe some of your companies. But I think ironically, I mean, it's going to push them to use like Bitcoin as their treasury. Yeah, but I think we discussed a little bit like people still need on-ramps to adopt. It's as we've seen, it's not, I guess, super easy for the average person to understand how to buy Bitcoin, mm-hmm. especially if Coinbase ceases to exist yeah, or it doesn't develop a new banking relation. I don't, you know, I don't see this being like the final choke point or whatever. Uh, I think there is going to be an opportunistic bank that takes on these relationships. There's just a hole in the market right now and I, there's going to be a bank that steps up. The interesting thing is Caitlin Long's bank that she's been trying to get a charter with the Fed for forever the one where she wants it to be like 108 percent backed or something yeah and they you know have been refusing to give her one now i don't know did you did you look into that at all a little bit or like because i kind of i saw that as well and it's more or less the bank like the fed does not want a bank essentially that is that reserved they want banks to be fractionally reserved they don't want 100 percent reserve bank because their fear is that in times like these everyone would rush their money into an institution like that because they can for sure know that that bank is 100 percent reserve so it's like they're afraid that it would create a concentration hmm. of of banking which is what's happening anyways but it would just pull the money away from the big players have board seats on them <laughs> so That's that was kind of the, the, like the play there that I think there was another bank too. Lynn Alden had mentioned it was like narrows, something narrows bank. That was, that was around the, the same vein as. Interesting. I thought it was more along the lines of they didn't want a crypto bank. I mean, that could probably play into it. As well. Which is interesting because they just shut down signature. They clearly didn't need to be shut down. Well, yeah, it's like the, the two banks that seemed to one was able to pay out with like the totals crypto banks over game they just paid everyone out and then signature was okay it was really just silicon valley bank and it had nothing to do with crypto it had literally everything to do with these like high value assets these assets that are considered so silicon valley bank went down by holding 
U.S. Treasury. Treasuries. Yeah. Yeah. It has nothing to do with crypto. Yeah. Do you think they're going to be a scapegoat? I, oh, yeah. I, I absolutely think, I think this is the bait and switch. Like, I'm, I'm trying to write an article based on the prestige you know, yeah. that movie, mm-hmm. the, the pledge of the turn and the prestige. Yeah. I'm just like, we have something, we make it disappear. And now it reappears as something completely different. Like, so I think, I think they're bait and switching us right now. And they're going to, they're going to get their media teams out to, to really hammer on the crypto thing to try to blame, beat it blame it all on FTX. Yeah. I mean, FTX was the kind of catalyst for Sig or Silvergate, but there's clearly banks failing that have never touched crypto yeah, or that like, don't touch crypto. Like Credit Suisse. Yeah. <laughs> who has had a very bad, and they've had a bad year. Like, I think I've been hearing about them for a long time with layoffs. Today they were down 20% in trading. I was just watching Bloomberg this morning eating breakfast, and I saw a clip of talking to the chairman of the, the Saudi National Bank, mm-hmm. who said that he could not, or the Saudi National Bank could not put any more capital towards Credit Suisse, because of like regulatory framework because it would create too much of an ownership in the bank and he said like between like you know european laws etc and statutory laws like they couldn't put any more money and that's why credit swiss tanked 20 percent today was because of this fear of liquidity issues now that basically its biggest holder was not going to be giving them anymore Yeah, yeah yeah and from that you saw like their corporate bond yield spike their credit default swaps spiked 2,700 basis points today. The corporate bonds moved into distressed levels. They saw $110 billion in outflows of deposits in quarter four. There hasn't been any slowing to that, supposedly. But the Swiss National Bank came in today and said that they would provide a backstop if necessary. So, I mean, yeah, they can't let that, that fail. No. I mean, I, I think they've been bailed out before, too. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not up to date on yeah. on them. What's interesting, First Republic, have you looked at them at all? I have not. All I know is that Kramer said it was a buy, and then like two days later it was down. Yeah, so like it also, <laughs> it also looks like it's imploding, partially because it actually can't re- benefit from the Fed bailout facility because they don't have that many treasuries yeah. and where these securities. So it depends on the makeup of on the of these banks. But yeah, I mean, do we think more are gonna drop? Are we gonna are they gonna need to like open up the bailout program higher? So to me, I think it seems like they're gonna let the regional banks fail if they fail. I think But they didn't let Silicon Valley Bank fail. Well, I guess it because of their depositor base, is that yeah, why? Maybe. I don't know. I'm just yeah. honestly like that that's part of this whole thing. Would they have let PNC fail? Like, you know, they're gonna let First Republic fail, and then it gets to be this like pick and choose. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Who knows? No crystal ball. So yeah, I think that there's more to come. I think the market has probably calmed down with this in- initial bailout, but I don't think that it's gonna be enough. I mean, we're so I guess it gets much more likely that we see failures if they continue to hike right right so we just have the cpi print what was that at six percent okay but that was a consensus so it came in at consensus last month was 6.4 so it is cooling i mean with a bank run situation like i think almost the situation is probably not to say good but good for the fed's plan in trying to cool inflation because everyone in the country is aware of what just and they're probably not going to be overspending because of, you know, they're going to be holding on to their money and that will hopefully lead to decreased prices in goods and services, commodities, et cetera. So I think it could, it could almost in essence drop CPI as well because of this also. Yeah. We won't see that for a little bit. Yeah. So do you think then if, well, where we're at right now, I'm just kind of yeah. curious what you think this upcoming FOMC meeting. What do you think happens? I think they pause. You think they don't hike? I think we get 25. 25 basis points. I think that's like the perfect sweet spot for them. So like if they stop, you're going to see asset prices rip. rip. Yeah. 
0.25 gives them the, oh, we're still tough on inflation. It's not where we want it to be. We still can raise if we need to. Yeah. And then they have this like little bailout thing on their side pocket where now it's effectively quantitative easing, but people don't really understand that that's what it is. So it gives them this little like this lever that they get an additional tool for them. Yeah. To kind of like play, you know, kind of support these banks that might be going under due to these rate hikes that they're actively doing. And it still like gives them the facade and it doesn't like, you know, they don't lose credibility. Yeah. But they're like fighting with this credibility thing where it just seems like the correct thing to do is to at least. Pause. I mean, I think as soon as they pause, it's, you know, risk asset asset season. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be game over. And that's when you get anyways. You know, and I, th- I mean, who knows what can happen in seven at this point like so things have been ramping up real we went from zero hedge posted this graphic of like the expected terminal rate and they posted a graph from march 8th march 9th march 10th basically through march 15th on march 8th you have an implied policy rate of 5.4 percent for january 31st 2024 and then by march 15th six days later that implied policy rate was all the way down to 3.4%. So <laughs> it's like things change in a week by 200 basis points on what was expected for the rates by uh, 2024. So I don't know. I think they're going to have to be super cautious because, I mean, it, it didn't even have to take Powell raising rates at the FOMC. He suggested 50 basis points rates. And that like catalyzed the market was pricing it in. Yeah. yeah. That the market priced it in. It was that's what catalyzed a lot of this, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I guess we'll see. It should be interesting. So I guess kind of parlaying back to the whole signature bank situation and Barney Frank suggesting that it was shut down because of crypto and how he also suggested that the Fed or, you know, the the Treasury don't even really have to take action because this action of bank seizure was kind of a signal to say don't even think about it and so banks have backed off from but you said because of the economic opportunity it opens a hole in the market like Mm -hmm. someone's going to fill that hole because there's money there yeah and i think that's where fidelity kind of comes in here they announced today that they would be opening their bitcoin and ethereum purchasing to their retail customers. And I believe they hold, they have like 37 million retail customers. Yeah, They, they previously only had it for their institutional customers. So, I mean, the timing is quite incredible here. <laughs> like you've got the potential for like Coinbase and all these crypto native companies to be on the brink because they don't have banking partners. And in comes Fidelity, who's been around for three quarters of a century you know, stepping in, they've got their banking relationships set in stone. Yeah. So I guess, I don't know, have you read into it? What does it mean? So they're an exchange. Do they allow you to withdraw off the exchange or do they hold all the custody? Do you know? So I don't know. I didn't say in the art, um, the article that I saw was from the blog. And well, I know they were for a while doing the, like, talking about doing the retirement accounts mm-hmm. where they would custody they would have to custody right. it for you right but yeah i guess it looks like it is a trading platform commission free don't really know about the custody though <laughs> yeah i don't know if they allow you to take it off i would assume that they would have to if they're going to compete so that if it's not like with like a yeah like a Robin Hood yeah. strike, if it's not available now, I would assume that it would be available at some point. But the only two assets that they're offering are Bitcoin and Ethereum. So to me, that begs the question: with the whole situation with the SEC potentially filing lawsuits against Coinbase, Kraken, Robinhood, whoever else that lists hundreds of shitcoins, would Fidelity? be listing these assets without some type of securities regulation or securities filing for those assets, would they be doing it without the nod from the SEC? Could could you maybe take an implied nod from the SEC? On, so are, are on they Bitcoin, just doing Bitcoin and Bitcoin not and, ETH. and Ethereum? So 
to me that that suggests that the SEC told Fidelity those two are good. I'm not going to go that far. I'll say they probably have some risk team that is, you know, pretty sophisticated. I know they've been in the digital asset space for a since, while. Yeah, like since like 2013, I think. Yeah, so they're making a they wouldn't go live without making a you know, going through this pretty extensively. I think that's probably the right decision. But again, we talked about last episode. I don't know how the SEC is going to come after everything, but I bet it's a safe bet to go with Bitcoin and Ethereum. Yeah. I just don't see them going after Fidelity, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that makes sense. They're not new players here. Right. Like, right. Not like they could bully around a Coinbase or yeah. whoever. I mean, a Kraken, which they clearly are doing currently. Yeah, Fidelity has like $4 trillion of assets under me. They're not really going to be able to push them around too much, I don't think. Yeah. So that's kind of what, like, thinking between the lines to me, it's like, you know, maybe it wasn't officially said, but unofficially there might have been some remarks like, yeah, this is probably okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I could see that. You got anything else? That's all I had written down other than this Pentoshi tweet. What's the Pentoshi tweet? The Pentoshi, our penguin boy on Twitter, tweeted, unpopular opinion in this space. Let's say Bitcoin became the global currency. In the end, the, dis- the distribution curve looks the same. Those who understand money and finance or have access to information end up with more. The more things change, the more they say this. Thoughts? I mean, he's not wrong. Yeah, it's, not- but Bitcoin wasn't created to... For equality. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, exactly. Everyone doesn't get the same amount. It's not socialism. It's a fair right to your money, to your value yeah. that you create. Yeah. So I, I don't think that it's a, it's not an equality of value. It's an equality of right to what you own. Yes. So everyone has the right to own something is more of what it is. Everyone has the right to act, you know self-custodially act as their own person in a network transact no one can tell them not to no one can no one has to give them permission to do so there's nothing about everyone gets the same if you want that go back to world coin and scan your retina or go to north korea like yeah well i think that's it oh we didn't talk about fed now oh i mean i don't have any we can talk about i have a yeah i didn't really look into fed now so also today which i mean it's a little fishy but they announced the launch of fed now which will go live in july and it is the fed's digital payment system it's supposed to be the system will allow bill payments money transfers and other consumer activities to move more rapid rapidly and at a lower cost it'll create a leading edge payment system that is resilient adaptive and accessible the system will allow bill payments money transfers such as paychecks and disbursements from the government as well as a host of other consumer activities to move more rapidly and a lower cost according to the program's goals participants will complete a training and certification process in early april with the launch drawing near we urge financial institutions blah 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 so I'm not sure who is having access to this. If this is, there's not a whole lot of information on it. Oh shit. This just popped up. Breaking on CNBC. Credit Swiss to borrow $54 billion from the Swiss National Bank. I got to open that. Sorry, we're skipping past Fed now. <laughs> this is live. Credit Swiss. This is published at 9.04 on CNBC. Oh shit. Announced it will be borrowing up to 50 billion Swiss francs from the Swiss National Bank under a covered loan facility and a short-term liquidity facility. The steps will support Credit Suisse's core businesses and clients as Credit Suisse takes the necessary steps to create a simpler and more focused bank built around client needs. In addition, the bank is making a cash tender offer in relation to 10 U.S. dollar-denominated senior debt securities for an aggregate consideration of up to $2.5 billion as well as a separate offer to four euro-denominated senior debt securities for up to an aggregate of 500 million euros. This is breaking news. Please check back for updates. So this is this is very new. There's not a whole lot of information on why this is happening, just that they're going to borrow $54 billion from the Swiss National Bank. I see the quote, preemptively strengthen liquidity. Oh, uh, preemptive, of course. You know, they... <laughs> 
they just preemptively needed $54 billion, don't we all? Well, I mean, I don't think the banking system in general is looking too good. I mean, if Credit Suisse, which is, I mean, it's the is it the second largest Swiss bank. It's a huge bank. Yeah. They would be one of the GSIBs, the global systemically important banks. Yeah. So when one of those starts to falter, things are going to be shaky. Yeah. So. I'll say this. Neither of us are hoping for this to happen. <laughs> no. I think we just need to like... I think I think make a, a point here. Yeah, I think a lot of times we laugh and it's like our distraction away from something that's serious. But yeah, I mean, we're not hoping for the entire banking system to collapse. Well, we're seeing some crypto people a- actually hoping for that. Which is I, I like to go off on a bit of a tangent. I don't know how that makes the crypto sphere look when they're actively hoping for the banking system to collapse. Uh it's pretty short-sighted. Uh, and I guess sad to to hope that because people don't think exactly what it means for the normal person, for the average person, right? Yeah. yeah, it might pump your crypto bags, your digital money bags, but that means a lot of people are going to be in a lot of pain. Honestly. Yes, exactly. I mean, when you see GDP drop, the death rate increases. I'm not, I'm not sure what the number is. It, it, so yeah, we're not hoping for this yeah. happens. I also don't think it's going to happen like we're clearly central banks and then nations step in to to backstop these important banks what that means in in practice or in theory for me is it's just kicking the can down the road and the best pot in in my eyes the best possible solution for all of this is you kick the can down the road and slowly adopt Bitcoin. And that's the only way out that I see that is kind of viable and doesn't lead to a ton of pain. So do you want to talk about, I mean, this is a whole other episode, but do you want to briefly try to talk about how Bitcoin kind of can replace the system or, or what its role could be in a, as a global reserve? Yeah, I mean, it's just a complete opposite of our system. Without getting super winded, the way... All of this is kind of failing right now is in a fractionally reserved banking system. Bitcoin, though it could also be fractionally reserved, which would be a huge, not mistake, but misfortune for this asset, it, right? It acts similar to a gold. The, the main difference is that it can be zipped around the world instantly. And that kind of will hopefully save us from it being fact, fractionally reserved. But right, gold was the the banking system, the way to store value for millennia, and it too inevitably failed to fractionally reserved banking. So under Bitcoin, ideally, you wouldn't have that. You would be able to hold your, and in the most idealistic form of Bitcoin, you, everyone could be able to hold their own wealth and be their own banks in a sense and accrue value just by holding this asset over time versus needing to vault it up with a third party that could then lend it out to generate income for themselves. And what we see and what we're seeing right now is there's inconsistencies in when you get these volatile, when you get these volatile times that are unpredictable. When someone has an asset that they're lending out, someone is also kind of trading against that asset or in these banks, it is someone's wealth that they're lending out. So you see lives get destroyed when these banks fall apart and they don't have the assets on hand. So under a Bitcoin standard, you would hope that more people have access to their own wealth. Does that answer your question at all? I think so. And do I you think, have any other, do you want me to go into something more? And I think like with gold, the, the whole part that's, I think that's difficult with, with gold is kind of the, the verification of it. So it's like the verification of the assets because it's something that you're holding in a vault you're kind of, you're, you're lending on gold that you say that's there. Yeah. But no one can really go in and say that's not there because they can't see it. Yeah. So <clears throat> that's kind of how the, the gold system began to fail is because the United States basically hoarded it after World War II said, hey, we're going to hold all your gold just in case another war breaks out and Germany tries to take all your shit again. So they held it and then we started kind of creating debt based on And it got to the point where Europe, I think France basically called our bluff and said, we don't think you have all that gold that you say that you do. And they sent warships 
over here to actually collect the gold. And that was kind of like the end of the gold window right there. But that's like, when it comes to Bitcoin, I think part of the, a lot of people talk about privacy and yes, privacy is an issue. It's a workaround on Bitcoin. I think it's something that's important to try to figure out as an individual. Well, I just, I'm going to stop you here real quick. So you can transact in Bitcoin privately. You can transact privately, but the actual ledger is a public ledger, right. which is part of what you're kind of going at. Is yeah. You can see that this, if you want to make an address publicly known or a set of addresses publicly known within, let's say, your bank and whatever, or an at-large individual, you can say, yes, I do. I verify. You can Everyone that has a node can verify that this place has this amount of Bitcoin. Yeah. So that would be kind of my... my like ultimate estimation of where would we, we would get to where certain banks would be saying that, you know, we hold this much Bitcoin and this is the assets that we say you can check for yourself. And I think it'll get to the point where, you know, there's competition between banks to be the most like solvent. And that will be kind of the driving factor because it is something that's, that's verifiable. I'll say this, if you take it like, even steps further, the cool thing about Bitcoin being this digital bearer asset is you can do different types of solutions that a traditional bank can't do with your money. So like these, this federated systems where not one entity can steal your money. It's a like conglomerate of people need to sign off on something, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah. Like there's a signature. Yeah. yeah. And then, then there's all these other programmable ways to do things. So not, to get super in the weeds of like different signatures, but there's a new thing called Op Vault, for example, where it's kind of different types of time locking. So like it just makes your assets more safe. So let's say you put, you could even do it yourself. So it's a way for you to be your own bank and say, this is my college fund for my kids. I hold these keys, but once he, and he can hold the key and his key goes active and mine goes inactive once he hits a certain age. Stuff like that. Where it's like, so you're like programming your own money. You're programming your own money and that's why there's no third party. Yeah. So that's a way to, you know, that's a way to transfer a lot of Bitcoin but intergenerationally yeah. without having an on-chain transaction mm-hmm. and without trusting any other person. There's just cool things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's part of this whole whole thing. It all stems from, you know, the basics of Bitcoin, but there's a lot deeper you could go into yeah and i mean whereas that is programming your own money the enemy that we will be fighting here soon is the cbdc the central bank digital currency or the investment bank digital currency where your money will be programmed for you it'll tell you what you can spend it on how much you can spend when you can spend it they can create and destroy at will something that we absolutely need to avoid yeah that's a quick i mean how Bitcoin can save the system is just giving you that a little bit more control. Self-sovereign. Yes. I mean, I think that's as, as long as another breaking doesn't pop up that says Credit Suisse just collapsed, I think we can probably wrap it up. Not in these hours. <laughs> right, so let's wrap it up. All right. This is Dap. Big Rune. Peace.